joy, resilience, trauma work, to me, they go hand in hand when we just think about them as us recapturing our aliveness and really our body's innate wisdom that knows how to cry and laugh and sweat in order to heal and release. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Anjali Shireen. Anjali is a licensed therapist who specializes in the relationship between trauma recovery, resilience building, and cultivating joy. She was a finalist for the White House Leadership Project for her work around resilience. She's also author of the book, Joyous Resilience, a path to individual healing and collective thriving in an inequitable world. For those of you that have done any training with me around trauma-sensitive mindfulness, you know that we work with resilience as a core principle of practice. So I was excited to have Anjali on the podcast to talk through some of the details of resilience and its relationship to meditation and working with trauma. So you'll hear us cover a lot of ground in our conversation. We talk about the ways that we can cultivate resilience in the face of stress and trauma, the relationship between trauma and resilience in clinical and contemplative practice, different aspects of self that relate to resilience, including what Anjali calls the vulnerable and resilient self, the ways that resilience can be a counterbalance to over-focusing on traumatic stimuli in meditation practice, and also cultural aspects of how trauma and resilience are talked about and defined. I learned a lot inside this conversation, and it was powerful to be in dialogue with Anjali about resilience and also to be talking about it in light of the stress and adversity that so many people are facing in this particular historical moment. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. And without further ado, here's Anjali Shireen. I'm here with Anjali Shireen. Anjali, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, David. I'm excited to have the conversation. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. I know you've been writing the book now for a number of years. It's been powerful to see you go through this process of studying resilience. And before we dive into the relationship between mindfulness, meditation, trauma, resilience, Mm -hmm. your work, could you just start by letting people know a little bit about yourself, you know, your background or how you've been spending your time right now and how did you get interested in resilience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm a I'm a Pakistani American clinician. And so my journey, I mean, began in Pakistan. That's where I was raised, and I came over to the U.S. when I turned 18. And it was really maybe a couple of years after that that my therapeutic journey began, which really is the journey towards you know becoming a clinician and then writing a book on resilience. And the story I've been thinking a lot about as I've been doing different podcasts is really like, you know, how did I even get into therapy? Because Mm -hmm. growing up in Pakistan, therapy is not common, especially not, you know, 20 something years ago, things like that. This is not a big part of necessarily Pakistani culture, therapy? And no, absolutely not. I mean, I think that now, like a couple of decades later, I think there is more openness, you know, but again, that really depends upon like class privilege and education and access a lot. Like, I guess in terms of access and like, you know, class privilege, same as this country, but still it's in a very, very early stages, but like mental health, you know, being taboo, therapy being taboo and really more than taboo, like even unheard of, like it wasn't necessarily something that I knew a lot about or had even heard. And it wasn't until I came into college, had left home, all of my family lived in Pakistan. 
And, you know, I also would not have used the word trauma um, in preparing for the podcast. I started kind of looking back and thinking about certain things like immigration or like my culture and the like traumatic portions in some ways of my culture or the systems of oppression in place in Pakistan and how much that was the backdrop of why in the first two years of being in America, you know, stressors were showing and the way that I was handling and coping with stress required me to get help. And I also remember the first time someone suggested to me, like, have you considered therapy? And this was maybe a year and a half in. And the like taboo inside of me and this feeling of like, how could you suggest that? And like, uh, I don't need that. And, yeah. you know, which is kind of amusing now looking forward. But like, it really showed how much of a taboo that was at the time and how much it felt like something was wrong. Something was wrong with me. And like, you know, um, but then a couple of years past that, um, just like the like stressors in relationships, stressors of being an immigrant on my own in this country, um, stressors of like graduating from college and like having to get a job and having nobody else in this country to like rely on or, you know, support financially. Like even just these very normal stressors, I think, in many ways for like a lot of people turned into once again, people in my life saying, have you considered therapy? And this time, thankfully, I said yes. And that changed everything. Like in terms of resilience, the foundational teachings that like therapy and mindfulness, which I can talk about later, gave me, shifted my ability to like regulate, to regulate my emotions, actually navigate day-to-day life without so much reactivity, which was a huge deal because so much of the stressors were like something special would happen. I would get reactive. That reaction would cause more damage inside of relationships. Then I would feel shame. And that would, again, create the cycle, you know, of um, more stress. So all of that, just being interrupted at such an early age and feeling so much more control in some ways, like healthy control and agency over my emotions, my actions, my relationships, my ability to ask for what I need or know what I need, mm-hmm. all of these things, I think, set the foundation over a number of years for what I would call resilience. And then over time, even open the way to joy because it's hard to access joy without, you know, like when you don't even know what you feel and how to care for yourself there. So, and in that backdrop was why I chose to become a therapist. And then, you know, now a couple of decades later, like some of the foundation for where the book came from. It's powerful to know that it came through also your therapeutic journey, that that became the doorway in. And along your path, I'm curious about marker points, or I was imagining you on this path, which were some of the main uh, signposts that you came to first. Was was trauma, I know you write a lot about trauma, but was, was trauma an early point along the path, or was that a term that came up later, or was resilience mm-hmm. kind of an entry point? Was there an order of operations for you about where you encountered these different these different terms? It's such a great question. Yeah, and I can see it like a path with these flagpoles. And no, I mean, that's what, what's interesting is that neither trauma nor resilience would have been the first flagpoles. I mean, I think maybe like many people, like I went in for what I would have called stress or, well, for me, it was like I'm feeling a lot of anger in relationships, you know, and, I, and so it was kind of like an acting out in relationships or like I'm not getting on with whoever I was dating at the time. So it really came the way that I at least find as a clinician, many people come to therapy actually with it to come with a presenting issue, right? I'm having a hard time in my workplace, I'm having a hard time in my relationship. And then as you dig and as I started to dig about why am I angry? 
And it was like, oh, underneath my anger, I'm actually grieving and I'm really hurting and I'm really scared. And then it's like, why are you grieving and angry and hurting and scared? Oh, I lived alone in this country for a number of years and I have no, no, you know, kind of like, like compass or like a community or I'm in my early 20s and I don't really know how to articulate my feelings and my needs and ask for what I want. And I'm enacting the trauma, inherited trauma, intergenerational trauma from my family of origin. And then, of course, it took many years to then break that down into, like, now I'm using the flagpole of trauma, but then later on, intergenerational trauma or systemic trauma. That came much later, like, thinking about, like, sexism and, like, patriarchy um, inside of my country and how much that translated into um, the anger and the violence and the control and the fear that then inhabited my body and then was being enacted out of me. So that like, you know, like it really started with like, how do I deal with my feelings and how to have a better relationship with my partner at the time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, and then it went all of this way and then resilience much, much later, I would say like the idea of like bouncing back and like, you know, and joy that was further down the road. Well, how about you? You know, you're the, one of the first, I think you are the first person to have on to take a deep dive into resilience being such mm. a you know increasingly popularized concept and um, so much writing being done about resilience. I think lots of definitions out there. Mm. So I'm excited to take a bit of a deeper dive because I think people talk about resilience in many different ways. So could you, could you talk a little bit about, I'll put a, um, like to come back to a couple of things you just said around intergenerational sure. trauma and how do you want to define resilience? Uh, what, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but are you, is there a working definition you have? And and could you talk a little bit about, are there any bridges you see with mindfulness and meditation? And if not, I can also throw in a couple of questions here about places I'm curious, but how are you defining it? And, and does it relate for you around practice? So I think the the model of resilience that I want to talk about um, probably is the one that I use in the book, Joyous Resilience. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea that sometimes people think resilience is the tools that might help you bounce back or cope better inside of stressful situations, like mindfulness or like breathing or like yoga or like exercise or any of those. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is that what is the foundational kind of inner aspects of yourself that actually let you access those things in a sustainable way, in a way that lets you actually utilize them, not just as like a goal that you make at the start of the year and you do a few times or you do intermittently, but more as something that you can reach for because you have these core inner selves. And so the way that I describe those selves are these four aspects of us. And when we don't have them, we go into what I call the cycle of suffering. And when we do have them, we have an inner circle of resilience. And is it okay if I just kind of walk you through and walk everybody's listening through them? So whoever's listening right now, I want you to think about something that might be causing stress in your life at this time. Maybe something that's scaring you or something that you're sad about or someplace that you get stuck. Like you really want to do something and then you find that you procrastinate or just can't quite reach for it. And that part of us that at that time is probably having a feeling like fear or anger or sadness. I call that the vulnerable self. So if you imagine a circle, 
on top of that circle is going to be this aspect of you called the vulnerable self. And that's the one that's having feelings and needs at different times about situations. And what generally happens because often uh, of like traumatic encounters in our past or ways that we've been taught to cope with those kind of feelings by caregivers that actually can be traumatic. So those are either we were neglected, which is another aspect, or we were criticized or abused if you go all the way to really traumatic situations. So here you have the vulnerable self atop of the circle. And then generally you may have been taught to ignore that self, which is to self-neglect. So to kind of go, nothing's happening, or let me focus on other other things, or let me find a way to dissociate or get away from this feeling or need because I don't know what to do about it by getting, by overworking, by getting into like substances or even just like binge watching Netflix, all of that. So I turn my head away, which makes a vulnerable self even more vulnerable, right? That feeling or distress or need isn't going anywhere. It just gets covered over. Or we might then watching that, like now I'm not reaching for the thing that I want. Now I'm feeling more helpless or more scared. Another aspect of us also rises up, which is also a learned aspect, which is then I begin to criticize or put myself down. What's wrong with me that I feel this way? What's wrong with me that I'm not excelling at work? What's wrong with me that I can't get over that 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 breakup yet? What's wrong with me that I keep thinking about that thing that really hurt me, right? And so the more that I criticize, same thing, the volume goes up on my distress, which is a vulnerable self. As the volume goes up on my distress, guess what? I want to neglect myself even more. Let me just work even more and forget about this. Let me just tune out even more. Hence the cycle of suffering, right? We go round and round. So are these different parts of the self that are related to resilience? So these are the parts of the self that undermine resilience. So this cycle that we get uh into, right, this is the cycle of suffering. And in the cycle of suffering, you had a feeling and a need up top, your vulnerable self, and the way that you were responding started to actually produce greater distress, which is the opposite of resilience. So in the book, the model talks about how it's it's impossible inside of the cycle to access those tools that people are like, yeah, but if you just did some, you know, if you just did some more mindfulness practice, if you just did some more yoga, if you just did this, you would feel better. It's like, it's hard to reach for that when you're criticizing me from the inside. And it's hard to reach for that when you keep on trying to check me out of what I'm feeling and needing. So what the book talks about in the model, and really this came out of like my own therapeutic journey, right? Was like, I had to learn how to replace these two ways of being with myself with these alternate roles called the circle of resilience. And so, and those are also the foundation of, I think, really good therapy. I think they're also the foundation of probably what's inside of mindfulness as well. And so the opposite of the neglector is the nurturer. And the nurturer is the one who turns to those feelings with attunement, with loving kindness, with acceptance, and goes, I see that you're feeling something and I actually want to be with you. And I want to hear this. That's powerful to hear that distinction. That makes a lot of sense about what what helps us access resilience or what actually keeps us away from it. So are you saying resilience is, I heard you say our ability to to bounce back from difficulty or struggle. Is that is that a definition that that holds water for you? And or if not, then how how would you define it in, in inside of these different parts of the self? So inside of the parts of self in the circle of resilience, I would define it as the capacity to be able to nurture in this attuning way, in this really highly attuned way, and then also to be able to protect, which is the opposite of the critic. 
So to be able to actually have healthy boundaries and have healthy limits and to ask for what you need and to be able to articulate your needs and wants in a way that builds relationship. So nurturing self, a protective self, the capacity to play, to create, all of that is the resilient self. And then the capacity to actually access awe and gratitude in a state of like interdependence with the larger world, which is the soul self. So for me, these four selves are the foundation of resilience. They they give the ability for us to rise back in a stressful situation. So if we go back to the parts of us that were feeling scared or grief, and now you're responding with nurturance, and you're responding also with boundaries that go I won't be. I, I won't actually internally criticize myself for the places that I'm stuck. And instead, I'm going to take my feelings and recognize. Oh, I have needs here, probably, and some limits that need to be addressed. And I get to have them. Mm-hmm. And then I also maybe engage with things creatively. And I let myself play. And I tell myself I do get access to pleasure and beauty. And then I even maybe have a practice like mindfulness that helps bring me in the now or connects me with something much vaster than this moment in time. It's those four things that will let that vulnerable self actually go, oh, I can... I can actually deal with this thing that is causing me grief. And I can deal with this thing that's causing me fear because I have these four internal ways, this circle, you know, in some ways like these like alternate parenting figures here to help me rise, to help me bounce back. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I um, it's new for me because I was, was going to ask the question whether you think of resilience as a, as a state or more of a trait. And I hear you talking about it more as a process that's something mm. that can that is either supported in a moment or is actually not supported. Mm. But does that I'm curious what you think of that. Is it a state? Is it a trait? Or I hear you describing it in a somewhat different way. I love the way that you broke that down. I mean, I do think of it as a process. At least it was for me, and I see it in the journey with my clients. I think especially like if you have, you know, if you're recovering from trauma. To me, it is a process to go inside of that recovery to build up the foundation to be resilient in this way, to be able to actually be with those very big feelings that trauma brings up in a way that doesn't overwhelm us or drown us, but actually allows us to feel them, um, pace them, and reclaim some of these things. Right? Like Trauma breaks apart the idea of having boundaries or limits. Trauma tells us you can just come in and basically like have all kinds of things happen to me and I have no control here. So these states, I guess, to answer your question, these states, you know, help people walk through a process of feeling more resilient. The idea of being innate as a trait, I mean, I think research shows some of us are born with certain traits that can help with resilience, like, you know, having a more kind of like a like a nature that's more, I guess, affable. Um, I just like as a baby, like some babies don't have that kind of affability or ease in themselves. So yes, there must be traits that help towards it. But I think that these are cultivated things, not necessarily this idea of like someone just has innate grit. And the nice thing about this being a process is that it is learnable. And that I think in the end, the hope is that parents or caregivers are actually helping children become resilient by modeling each of these um, different aspects that I talked about. But this model is saying we will we can actually relearn them as adults and provide them mm-hmm. within ourselves. So it is a process. Maybe it's a good time to just ask, why is resilience relevant to trauma? Or how do the two go together? 
One of the things I was thinking about with the podcast and actually in the book, you know, because the book is geared towards individuals and like, okay, how do you build these um, inner states to get become resilient? But the truth is, and even in the book, these states are not built outside of relationship. And when I think about trauma and I think about like what makes an event traumatic versus be survivable and, or even if it is traumatic, what helps us recover, right? And I think what helps us recover, hands down, are the sources of resilience, including relationship. Like if we have somebody in our life who was nurturing in that way that I'm describing, or who was able to provide some protection, or who was simply able to sit there and listen and go, you're not alone, right? Like that shifts the trauma, either from the profundity of its impact or at least how well we're able to survive. And so it feels like in order to cope with and recover from trauma, we do have to have the aspects of the processes that help us feel that help us emerge from it as survivors and not just stuck in that, right? So it feels like they have to go hand in hand, like to survive trauma, we have to find our ways back to resilience and we have to honor the ways that we probably were accessing them anyway. I mean, I know you and I got trained in kind of the same, so the same modalities. And I love the list that we were given about, you know, what are the things that trauma survivors who actually are able to survive and then thrive have in common? And they are creativity, relationships, um, right? Access to like nature. These are all sources of resilience. And I talk about that in the book, like each of these things help us come out of what seems like unsurvivable back into life mm-hmm. and thriving. Mm-hmm. One of the, I'm curious if I, could, if I could run this by you around where I, in the trauma sensitive work, have been incorporating resilience practices mm-hmm. is as a counterbalance to hyper focusing or the tendency to over focus on traumatic stimuli. Mm-hmm. So, as I learned it in trauma work, we will tend to direct our attention towards stimuli that are threatening to some level or important, like, you know, traumatic sensations or flashbacks, you know, particular intrusive thoughts. And in meditation practice, I think that there'll be a pull there in that Mm -hmm. direction Mm -hmm. towards the trauma. And so for that reason, we need to have, I call them tools or practices that enable us to increase our resilience or to give us uh, we could call it like a counter vortex that pulls us away from trauma, not as a way to avoid it. It's mm-hmm. not just a practice of avoidance, but it's actually to allow us inevitably to incorporate what was overwhelming for us over time. Mm-hmm. But that's a, you know, that's a very particular way to think about resilience. But I thought I'd just just put it out there to run it by you to see what do you think of that? Does that hold water in terms of the the work that you're doing? I love that. I mean, I think, yeah, like if if in trauma work, right, resilience work, one of the kind of like foundational practices is you have to have a reservoir of something, some kind of understanding of like love for yourself or care for yourself or the, the way to access, like even just like being able to come back into the now before you head into deeper waters. So when I hear you say that, it makes sense to me that like, if you're going to open up your psyche to whatever is there, you need to know that you can actually dip a toe in there and come back. That's one thing. And then it is helpful to know that you can attune your attention towards that which actually feeds you Mm. in order to feel the strength 
I think, and the courage to go towards that which has been overwhelming, right? Like if, because all that's there is like, it's just overwhelming, especially if you, and you don't know if there is something else, or if you do know it, it has been out of avoidance. So to be able to titrate back and forth between that which is difficult and then that which actually brings ease, to even know that one can still feel ease or beauty or joy or just like, ease in the now or presence in the now, that is so empowering, I think. And I give so much courage to then be able to face into that, which is hard. Joy's in the title of the book. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about joy? Because I notice when I hear it, that term, the term actually feels quite charged for me Mm. in that I think it can sound like a kind of psychopop with spiritual bypassing, just Mm. be joyful kind of mm-hmm. kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. I don't feel in any way you're using it in that way. I feel there's a ground inside of it. There's sometimes the difference between someone using joyful or the word joy in what feels to me like a legitimately grounded way that comes from turning and facing difficulty versus a bypass of joy. Yeah. And could you talk a little bit about what it is to what is joy inside of resilience yeah. or how does that exist within us and how does it relate to trauma? Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. And I talk about that like right up front in the book, because I think that that is such a common idea. And I think it has been used in that way, right? Like where joy, joy is spiritual bypass or joy as like being happy and that being the only emotion that joy includes. So the way that I talk about joy in the book or joyous resilience is really aliveness. And aliveness begins with the permission to be able to feel everything that you need and want to feel and do feel. So just like that, that is such a, to me, like a, in some ways, like a wild, like radical, amazing idea that like, I'm just, I'm allowed to feel what I feel, all of it. And the joy in getting to be able to grieve and grieve freely without being criticized for it or undermined for it or rushed out of it, or the joy of getting to have rage, you know, especially in these times as we confront so many things that are so hard, I mean, systemically, and it may seem like an oxymoron, like how could that be joyous? But if you think of joy as like aliveness, as I have access and room for all my sensations and my feelings and I get to have them, um, To me, that is the baseline, because in that then is also permission for, I think, something that has been shamed out of a lot of us, which is our happiness and and, and our capacity for pleasure and beauty, especially in times of suffering and pain. And to me, that is actually eroding our resilience, because if I cannot still laugh when I see a baby, right, and like, uh, just like, get to actually enjoy that innocence and that play if I don't get to make music, sing or dance or have food from my culture or like hear my language of origin or kiss and hug and touch. If I don't get to have access to these very natural embodied ways of feeling joy, how am I supposed to survive this world and how are we supposed to survive our pain? And then when we get shamed out of our joy, because it's supposed to mean that we are not feeling instead of, as you described, if I can actually keep an access and a through line to these ways that help me process grief and trauma that just don't look like talk therapy and they don't look like always talking about the trauma, but they actually look like crying about it and singing about it and like dancing about it and like, you know, talking about it while I eat my favorite foods, you know, with someone. If we are 
in some ways cheated out of or cut out of that, you know, I think that we start to lose access to really innate sources of resilience. And so joy, resilience, trauma work, to me, they go hand in hand when we just think about them as us recapturing our aliveness and really our body's innate wisdom that knows how to cry and laugh and sweat in order to heal and release, right, and move. And so it's really thinking about it in that sense versus a I'm just going to think myself happy on top of trauma. That isn't joy. Right. And it doesn't have the same flavor. No, right. That feels like more of a bypass. Mm. I have a question for you about what you said earlier around the roots of your own journey of Mm -hmm. coming to therapeutic work and particularly from Pakistan and what you said around intergenerational trauma and what sounded like elements of of repression at times Mm. and when you just talked about, I'm realizing as we're talking about this, that one of the ways I've been conditioned to think about resilience is really around grit, really mm-hmm. around this ability mm-hmm. to kind of bear down, not necessarily white knuckle grip our way through things, but really to to fight for bouncing back or come mm-hmm. through things difficulty. Mm-hmm. You're talking about resilience in a way that I don't know if I've heard before around this permission. You said accessing, allowing us to have the full range of our experience. And I can't help wonder about connections here to what you've described around not having that permission or times where Mm. that was unavailable to you. And I'm wondering if there, is there bridges there or are there threads between your own experience, maybe your own history or the history of your own lineage there and where this talking about resilience as such a deep permission to have that full breadth of our experience? Mm-hmm. And it's a lovely question. To be honest, I haven't thought about that particular aspect, like allowance as related to my culture of origin, though I will say, and again, to be very clear, like the thing I'm about to say is rooted in my own privileges and like all my own intersectional identities, right? So coming from like a middle-class upbringing in Pakistan, which meant that there is certainly an ease in the culture, at least as I experienced it, especially around, like, say, work. Both of my parents worked, which is rare. Um, it's rare for women to work, but my mom did work, as did my father. But yet, I don't know if it's because I always joke, like, there's not that much to do after work back home. You know, I mean, the entertainment is, like, really eating and being with family. So there isn't the same drive that I noticed um, growing up in terms of you have to work, 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 and do, do, do. You know, I often joke with friends that, like, my parents would say, I hope you're not doing too much. I hope you're not doing too much. And, like, and they mean it sincerely that it would be actually, I don't want to say like a wrongness, but like something to watch out for if you're doing too much, which is so counter to what happens, I think, in the West, or at least what I've experienced in America, right? Which is, you know, how are you? Oh, I'm busy. Oh, good. Good. You're busy. That must mean, you know, you're doing well, you're succeeding. So I name that to say like, and there's an allowance it felt like in the culture for time to have time, there was time to do nothing. Again, of course, that's also class privilege, but there was time to be. And there was even value and worth in being and then being with loved ones and taking time to contemplate. And there's like set times in the day. I mean, you know, Muslims pray five times a day, five times a day, wherever you are, whether you're at work or you're traveling, you pause, you pull out your prayer mat, you spend time with God. 
that is a different mindset in terms of allowance, right? Like you even get a release valve ostensibly five times a day to have your feelings and to drop in. So I wonder, your questions made me wonder like, oh, is that part of it? Like a certain kind of allowance of our state of just being that might have been there? And then honestly, the allowance really comes from, you know, the past 16, 17 years of of being in practice with clients and then 20 plus years of my own therapy where the thing that I see brings relief to people, no matter what culture, no matter what experience, what level of trauma is permission to be where you are. And like people's jaws relax, our eyes let go. I think if you're listening to me right now, just notice what happens in your body when I say you have permission to be where you are. Your permission to be where you are, right? And like the rest and release that comes. And so it feels like, I imagine seeing it, seeing it like mindfulness, you have to start where you are, right? Like come into the now and be where you are. And like, how can we access anything if we don't begin there? I think everything comes out of there, the journey towards resilience and the journey towards like being alive. And I think being compassionate to each other in our aliveness it's great. This whole conversation is really opening up different ways for me of thinking about resilience. And I want to run something by you to see what you think about it. But um, I've heard you talk about resilience somewhat when you talk about the allowing that there is simply almost like a surrender or a being with that enables that resilience to come through. And other ways that I've heard about resilience talked about, it seems more intentional, almost mm-hmm. like something that we need to do in order to push against almost like a, a current of adversity or trauma. So mm-hmm. here's the thing I want to run by you. Do you know, you know Rick Hansen at all? Mm-hmm. Um, so Rick Hansen has done some work around resilience. And one of the distinctions I've heard him talk about is around working with and being with. Hmm. That there will be times in our lives where being with is absolutely the move that's really mindfulness hmm. at its core, that hmm. cultivation of presence of being with. And then other times where we need to work with our experience more actively. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, sometimes I end my meditation earlier and I go for a walk or I, I purposely put on music that will change my state or my mm-hmm. emotion, my mood. Mm-hmm. And I was often thinking of resilience as a working with practice. That's something that, again, we're purposely doing this example in meditation where I'm going to purposely be with what's resilient to provide a counter vortex away from the trauma. But I hear you talking about that it can be both working with or being with, or mm-hmm. even maybe more like being with is what I hear you talking about, kind of opening to an essential nature. I just want to throw out that distinction and see what you think about it. And if that holds water for you, that that distinction between working with and, and being with and how that relates to resilience. Yeah, I'm so enjoying this conversation. I just like, it's fun to <laughs> think about it these ways. I don't, I, I love that. I would say at least in the model that I'm talking about, we have focused right now in this conversation more on the being with. I think it's a both and. I guess what I'd say is I don't know how to work with without first being with. And I think that's really the question. Like, I feel like what I'm saying is beginning with, I'm going to be with you. Because I think oftentimes, I mean, it reminds me of partnerships, right? The classic example of one partner wants to say, this is what I'm feeling. Another one jumps in and goes, great, how can I fix it? And then right there, we're in an argument. And how hands down, even if we want someone to work with or help us think through we still need them to be with, to listen and to bring that quality of attention. So I 
wouldn't know how to work with without being with. But yes, once we be with, the role of the protector in the model I'm talking about and the resilient self is to come in and go, okay, so now that I've been with, like, what are you needing and what are you feeling? Let's listen for what are you needing and how do we actively lean into this thing? which is harder, but it's less hard if I know I have a nurturing base to fall into. But I just want to be careful, like nurturing doesn't mean enabling. It doesn't mean, oh, they're there, okay, well, let's not, you know, think about it too much and let's again turn away. That's the neglect. But it is saying you have a soft place to land. I am going to be with you and I'm going to help pace you. I think that's the other piece around working with, especially with trauma, right, is like working with with respect to the pace that you require that won't close you down, but also, um, you know, like won't just keep you paralyzed in a certain place. This is a very fine balance of going, what's the tiniest stretch that you can make that's still a stretch? I lean towards the tiniest stretch because I think like most people are taught like go further, go harder, and then start to feel ashamed because it really wasn't the pace that matched them. So better to go, go for the tiniest stretch and I'm going to be right there encouraging you and congratulating you and helping you build the tolerance really for the next stretch and the next stretch to work with. So I think being with helps provide the tolerance and the bandwidth to work with and then they go together. Yeah. That's great. And when you're talking about, Hey, I'm here with you. I hear, I'm imagining both you with clients. Is this also a form of, of inner dialogue? Is this also how people relate to themselves? Oh, absolutely. So the model in the book or like the way that I learned it, and I think really in the work that I do with clients, it is to have these voices become our own, right? This is this is how you then begin to work with yourself. And also it becomes relational. If you're talking with yourself in this way, then of course you're doing this with another person. And then a lot of times you need to learn this in relationship. So I talk about in the book, like we draw on templates, whether it's in the therapeutic relationship or in different spiritual relationships or friendships, or even sometimes from like movie characters or like characters in books or like, where have you encountered these voices that help you model and build this voice inside of you? But yes, it's these voices inside of us that allow us to feel at home in ourselves and safe enough in ourselves and courageous enough to be resilient. Right now, when I'm in the world and I'm experiencing stressors, but I have these voices inside of me, both being with me and helping me work with and helping me reach out for help so that I can be with and work with even better Mm -hmm. and helping me, like you said, turn on the music and even to know what music do I like that changes my mood. Right? right? Like, right. W- what am I feeling and that it actually requires me to change my mood? It's knowing those things that then helps me feel confident and resilient. And I think it's knowing those things that transform in like mindfulness practice, for example, right? All these thoughts are coming. Like, I know for me, the first time I encountered mindfulness, like, yes, it's great. I can watch my thoughts and they can go away. But some of those thoughts, a lot of them, I actually needed to work with. Like it wasn't enough to watch them and have them go away. They were thoughts of grief and anger and pain. And I needed to actually work with them and encounter them in order to feel peace and watch them go by. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. these aspects in this work that I think lets us do that. Mm -hmm. This feels like that touches longstanding conversation between say Buddhist tradition and Buddhist practice and more psychotherapeutic approaches Mm. where at what point 
<laughs> do we engage with the thought versus just observing it in a non-judgmental mm-hmm. way? And I hear you that there might be moments where, and this is really at the core of the, the trauma-sensitive work that I've been doing mm-hmm. around meditation, is that the being with capacity is huge. It's so important. Mm-hmm. And that there will be moments when uh, someone struggling with trauma or a community struggling with trauma will actually need different tools to be able to integrate the trauma over time or not become fully dysregulated inside of practice. So I, I, I appreciate that you're saying that. And I think of resilience, resilience practices as being one of those areas where sometimes a resilience practice in a purposeful way is absolutely what's needed in a moment instead of just the bare being with. Yes, absolutely. A very, just a general question for you about this process that you've been through with the book. I, heard a story from Sharon Salzberg. I don't know if you know her, um, a Buddhist writer who wrote a lot of, yeah, Love and Kindness. And she wrote a book on faith and she was talking about that process. And she said, well, I didn't know much about faith when I started writing the book. I actually wrote the book because I wanted to learn about faith. Mm. And I thought that was so beautiful, not needing to be the expert mm-hmm. who's writing. And so I'm wondering what you've learned or what you're learning about resilience that you either didn't expect you were going to learn or I I know any time that we're trying to produce Mm -hmm. a manuscript, that's no small thing. And I imagine there'd be many challenging days where you're grappling with ideas, but what, either what did you learn or what are you learning about resilience? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the like joke always is like if you start to write on something or focus on something, life is going to give you right the like tests of it all the time to be like, okay, here it is, engage with it. Mm-hmm. I think um, two things come to mind. One, I noticed in writing the book how much some of the roles that I've talked to you about really helped me because it is nerve wracking to sit down and go, I am now going to write a book. The idea of like a whole book is daunting. And I could tell that I was beginning to shut down, which is my vulnerable self. And I'm so grateful for those inner voices, like the both the nurturance and allowance and then the, the boundaries and the pacing that really let me go, it's okay to feel this. How do we really lighten this to the point where I really told myself, like, we're not writing a book, like you're just sitting down today and you're going to basically blurt out everything that you want on a piece of paper. And that's it. Right. And the pacing and like allowing myself to like grow into it, allowing myself to know I will be loved and I'll be okay no matter what happens. I mean, to the point where I would say to myself, like, we can always give back the money that they gave you and not do this at all if it really goes awry. You know, like just that kind of permissioning and allowance and okayness helped me to get through. Also, the resilient self, the capacity to make it fun. I've loved reading since I was a child, and I've loved the world of writers. And I think allowing myself to think about it in a bit of a playful way of, like, I'm getting to be a writer, and, like, what are my favorite writer outfits? And I'm going to wear those because clothes are a part of my resilience practice, you know, or like, what are the beautiful spots that I can go and write in? So like I I wrote in gardens or in the back of bookstores, or I thought of like favorite writer rooms, like making it playful in that way and being generous really helped. And then this is a little bit different than the writing. It's after the, the writing that I've really been thinking about lately. You know, I mean, writing in a pandemic because the end of the book came in the in in the quarantine. And like many people, lots of hard things happening in my personal life and also beyond. And I think that was a time and lately where I've been thinking a lot more about the soul self in the book, which really is like the spiritual practices or like whatever you call it, however you tap into something greater 
to survive things that are just so much larger, it feels like, than what your body can withstand. And for me to realize, like, some things are so hard that it really helps to have the nurturing voice. It really helps to have a boundary on the self-criticism because that definitely takes away additional suffering. And yet I still need that capacity to be able to just come into the now and come into my sensations and come into some kind of arc of history or arc of time or a sense of like, there is some profound, for me, it would be like love, some profound energy or love that's there that holds all of this when the pain is so much bigger than like, it feels like one person can hold or tolerate. Mm. So lately I've really been thinking about that and like how necessary that feels for resilience because they're truly, I mean, we are living in, I think human beings have always lived in times which are in different ways, very hard and like large scale hard. And then in my lifetime, I guess in our lifetime, this feels like a very hard time and also a time of great opportunity to really face, right, many systems of oppression, having them break down. And how can we use the capacity to tap into something larger or the here and now and presence to be able to transmute that and work with it, like be with it and then work with it, mm-hmm. not hide from it? Um, mm-hmm. That's what I've been thinking about. That's great. That was really the... One of the, I mean, there's hours of things I could ask you about, but it's one of the last things I wanted to ask you about was about the global pandemic. And what's your assessment right now? I mean, you just touched on it right now, but where do you see us in this particular moment? Uh, Now, I realize, of course, that's going to be different around geography, country, state. It will look different everywhere. Could you talk a little bit about what you're seeing right now? And then again, where resilience, it's a powerful time for you to be launching a book, a book on resilience, I think as there may be shifts and changes on the horizon over the next year, mm-hmm. as we come mm-hmm. through this, what do you, what do you see and what are your assessments? Gosh, I mean, yes, like prefaced by right, who you are and what's been happening. Are you a frontline worker? Have you kept your job? What race, what country, all of that. I guess right now what I'm seeing for sure is certainly an emergence of hope, like both weariness and hope. It felt like the past couple of months, you know, it felt like the wind long winter of the pandemic where like people were more tired than I've seen them in a long time and like ready for something new and then really weary with the vaccines. And as the vaccinations pick up, I think there is hope, hope and then like consternation, right? Like not really knowing what's on the other side in some ways and that wide feeling of like, it could be all the way back to whatever normal used to be. But I think more like knowing that it's an unknown and a chance to keep working with what I think the pandemic has really made us face on a large scale, how to be with the unknown, how to continue to have hope or dreams or connection when everything gets stripped away. And the best of what I've seen from last year, I mean, there's a lot of the worst and the hardship, but the best of what I've seen towards resilience, I mean, I think is people looking at this time and questioning how have we been spending our time and like where could we redirect our attention, like back to the crucial things that matter, obviously connection being one of them. I think slowing down the pace of life or the demands that we put on ourselves being another. I think really thinking about the impact, um, the, the huge inequalities in all of our systems and how people are impacted. And I think because people were sitting at home and because it was part of the large scale dialogue, maybe being more in tune, maybe being you know more compassionate, more invested in that kind of change. I hope that that stays as the busyness of life picks back up, like this attunement to just large scale inequality and the impact on resilience. Like 
I do want to say in this conversation, as we talk about resilience, we haven't mentioned like all of these things are lovely. Yes, building up these selves inside of us and access to all these tools, but they're impossible to have without some other basic foundational things like access to food, water, shelter, healthcare, right? All of that. And like how is a society that has not been invested in? And that's that's starkly emergent in the past year and a half. But I'm grateful. I'm grateful for how people have gotten much more involved and much more um, able to see. And then I think, like I said, like being with the unknown, that life changes on a dime, right? And I think this past year and a half really felt that plans changing, everything we thought, our whole world changing, and what it took for us to get through. And I think each person answering that for themselves and then collectively. Um, I'll say one last thing, which is I run a joy, like a joyous resilience group, and we usually meet once a month and we meet live. And last year, the the group began as the pandemic began, we went into quarantine and we decided we'd keep it, we'd stay online. And I have to tell you, majority of the year, it felt like such an oxymoron, right? We would meet and go, great, we're here to meet about joy and resilience and the world is on fire. And, you know, there's just so much pain. How could we even do this? But I think I would feel so kind of caught when we would begin each circle, you know, like, this is, it's impossible to focus here. We should be talking about something else. And yet I found that because we had that container of joyous resilience, we were able to process and grieve and cry and rage and yet survive and even thrive this past year, partly because we did keep our eye on like, how will we cultivate our joy? How will we focus on for ourselves and our pods, our communities, some way of accessing resilience and staying connected to the reason why it actually is important to be alive? And I'm so happy we did that. And to me, that's a template going forward that like maybe think more about why it matters to be alive, what a precious gift it is. How do we continue to make that um, a joyous possibility for future generations? But that's not a bypass. That's actually like a, how do we live our lives well and how do we create well communities and that we will continue dreaming and hoping and working in that direction because that is joy. There is a joy in that, in the midst of pain, to work for something better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you're taking your work out to wider and wider circles um, in this moment. I'm just grateful for the work that you've done. And I'm sure you'll be doing a lot more in the years to come. Do you want to just share? I will share also how people can get in touch with you, but um, anything you want people to know about how they can find you or... Yes. I mean, uh, one, if you enjoyed what we were talking about and you're curious about those different aspects of ourselves and how to cultivate them, if you go to my website, which David will share, there are nine guided meditations that are free that you can access at any time to help you actually build those selves. And then I love to hear if you're reading the book um, or you have any thoughts, I'm on Instagram or you can reach me via my website. I'd love to hear what you're thinking about regarding this, you know, this conversation and how you're being resilient during this time. So. Yeah, love to hear from people there. And of course, the book is available everywhere. And may it bring, may it just bring people, you know, the healing and the joy they need. Right on. Well, thanks, Anjali. Thanks for being here. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the really beautiful and very important work you do and the information in the podcast. Mm -hmm. It really matters. Thanks. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Anjali for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about trauma-sensitive mindfulness work, you can visit my website at davidtrelevin.com. We have lots of resources there, including information about online training. 
Thanks again for being here and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you.